0: you're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody here in the room in London and everybody online, um, to this panel discussion um, and launch event on the causes and consequences of Darfuri migration into Europe. We have an exciting panel for you today, including the authors of the report that you have in front of you. um, And there's some more copies outside. um, And also some other panelists from the Sudanese community here in the UK. And um, we have uh, Dame Marsden, who was an official in Sudan for many years. I'll introduce them properly in a second. Um, and just the reason that we were so interested in this study um, as the humanitarian policy group is that, you know, for the first time, or, or there isn't much information about the specific experiences of specific migration groups, ethnic groups migrating from uh, their point of origin into Europe. Um, and really looking at that whole process from the reasons why they have moved to the journeys that they made along the way, to their experiences once they get into Europe, and then what impact that migration has back home. And in the context of the fact that in this particular case, um, Darfuris have a a long history of migration. So looking at this almost from a systemic perspective perspective, and a kind of whole of process um, from origin to to final um, destination. Um, and this also was an important study for us because it's the, the, the subject of a collaboration between the Humanitarian Policy Group here at ODI and the uh, Research and Evidence Facility led by SOAS here in London. Um, we also benefited from a, a fantastic partnership, research partnership and in-kind support from Oxfam in Sudan, from SEDEJ and from the Faculty of Economic and Social Sciences at the University of Khartoum. So really a very wide partnership here. Um, We also would like to acknowledge the funders of this study, um, the EU Emergency Trust Fund for the Horn of Africa, as well as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands. So as I said, we have a fantastic panel for you. I am Christina Bennett. I'm the head of the Humanitarian Policy Group here at ODI. I am your chair. Um, We have the two authors of this report, um, Margie Buchanan-Smith, far to my left. Um, She's a senior research associate here at ODI and has been involved in the humanitarian aid sector for more than 20 years. Her current focus is Sudan, and particularly Darfur, where she worked in the 1980s, specializing in policy practice, livelihoods, and evaluations. She's currently also a visiting fellow at the Feinstein International Center at Tufts University outside of Boston. My immediate left is Suzanne Jaspers, the co-author and co-researcher of this report. She is a research associate associate at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies here in London. She has 30 years of experience in research and operational work um, in the social and economic aspects of food security, and has just finished a PhD at Bristol University examining the history and politics of food aid in Sudan. Um, Suzanne first worked in Darfur in 1989, and has continued to be engaged in that situation since then. To my immediate right is Mr. Zuhair Bashar. Uh, Mr. Bashar is currently an independent researcher with over 20 years of work experience in conflict resolution, conflict management, development, humanitarian, political affairs, and in the private sector, mainly in Africa and in the Middle East. Zuhair himself is a refugee from Sudan and a leader of a Sudanese community here in the UK in Bradford. And to my far left, sorry, my far right, we've got um, Dame Rosalind Marsden, an Associate Fellow at Chatham House, Um, and from 2010 to 2013, the EU Special Representative for Sudan. Before joining the EU, Dame Marsden had a long career in the British diplomatic service, including postings as Consul General in Basra, as British Ambassador to Sudan, and British Ambassador to Afghanistan. So just um, as a bit of housekeeping, we will be, this is being recorded live and the recording will be available in a few days time. Um, We will be tweeting, so the hashtag I believe is on the screen there, it's hashtag Darfur. Please um, follow us um, and tweet about the conversation that we're having in this room um, and any impressions you have of that conversation. Um, We will be sort of having a bit of a panel discussion up here first. We will then turn it over to you both here in the room and online for some questions afterwards. I would just remind you to speak into the mic and um, identify yourself by your name and affiliation when you do. So let's get started. Um, First, can I speak to, can I turn to Suzanne who is going to present some aspects of the report and specifically um, the aspects of the research that looked at why people move. So, uh, Suzanne, go ahead.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, let me. Oh, sorry. Um, so, yes, I mean, maybe the first thing that I should say is that, um, you know, when Margie and I were, were thinking about this, I mean, we, we wanted to do this study because our initial investigations had shown that, you know, with the surge in migration to Europe, a large proportion were also um, Darfuris. But in fact, little was known about who was coming, uh, coming out into Europe and why or, or, or even how. Um, We also, in this research, looked at kind of how migration patterns built on those from the past. And again, you know, Margie and I have been working in Darfur on and off since the 1980s. And, of course, we knew that migration has been a kind of key part of Darfuri livelihoods for a very long time. So. Darfurids have migrated for a long time, uh, particularly since the 60s and 70s when, you know, with, with drought, with um, economic crisis and famine. And this already included migration to Libya, to Egypt, to the Gulf countries. Um, so this in itself is is, is nothing new. But uh, migration kind of changed dramatically um, from 2003 when conflict and, and counterinsurgency um, displaced you know, more than two, two million people. Now, the key thing here is that this has continued. I mean, if you think, in, in 2017, there were still um, 1.6 million displaced people living in camps, uh, 3.3 million in need of humanitarian assistance. Um, so this, and this is in fact the same number as, or, or similar numbers to those at the, hu- supposedly the height of the humanitarian crisis in 2005. Now, this, uh, this graph shows the, the, the peak of mig- Sudanese migration to, to Italy, which in, in 2014 and 2016. Now, these are the kind of things that happened at the same time in Darfur. Um, there was an increase in, 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 in violence uh, or violent conflict and displacement, um, specifically from 2013 with the creation of the Rapid Support Forces, which were kind of uh, incorporate many of the kind of Arab militias that had been fighting alongside the government. At the same time, there was a kind of reduction in regional opportunities for migration. Um, So for, for example, there was conflict in South Sudan, so not possible to go there. Um, In Chad, you would see kind of changes or, you know, closure of camps or reduction in services, civil war in Libya, political instability in Egypt. So so within the region, the opportunities were very much reduced. And then, of course, you have the collapse of the Libyan state and the proliferation of smuggling networks. So what we're saying here is that, um, you know, even though... The numbers of uh, Darfuris migrating to Europe, or, or even Sudanese in general, is small compared to the number of displaced within Darfur. This really kind of highlights or reflects a new phase in Darfur's humanitarian crisis. So in more detail, who migrates and, and why? Um, well, basically, it's, it's mainly young men in their 20s and 30s, but also some which are kind of minor, sort of 14 to 15 years old when they leave Sudan. A really important thing is that the majority of uh, people who migrate to Europe have a history of displacement. So either um, people have grown up in a, in a, in a displaced camp, or they've been displaced multiple times already within the last 15 years. Most of them are quite poor, so they, they've been involved in kind of, you know, maybe casual labor, kind of quite marginal activities, having to save money to at least make it to, to Libya or, or get money as a gift or a loan from friends. Working in gold mines was another kind of really important, what you could call it, opportunity that came up from around 2013, 14. Most of them were also from the ethnic groups uh, related to the rebellion, so Zahrawa, Masalit, um, Fur, but also we found many other tribes also when we interviewed people in in Europe. Now what our study shows is that these people are facing ongoing attacks, harassment, surveillance, ill-treatment, both in Darfur and in Khartoum. Um, Displaced populations and students are particularly affected and yeah i mean so attacks in, on 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 camps in darfur continue and and maybe say particularly here that they're just under the con, con, under constant surveillance so if anyone kind of as particularly young man moves out of the camp he comes back and he's picked up he's he's questioned detained sometimes even tortured um Arrest and ill-treatment of students is also common, and also there is discrimination in finding employment. So basically, this amounts to uh, systemic persecution of particular population groups. The other thing is that um, loss of livelihoods, of course, because of protracted displacement and social pressure were kind of contributing factors. So for many displaced, uh, we found that their land remains occupied, or, or it is not safe to, to farm. Um, and for many young men, not being able to fulfill their social obligations is, is really a sort of major frustration and even shame. I mean, they can't... When you get older, you're supposed to be able to look after your family, you're supposed to be able to, to get married. Um, and of course, you know, receiving pictures from friends who have made it to, to Europe, whether on WhatsApp or Facebook, just makes the situation worse. So basically in Sudan, they had no hope of the situation getting any better. So what we found is this kind of deep sense of despair amongst uh, young people in, well, in Darfur and when they, yeah, it, it, of people in, in Darfur and Sudan. And what this meant is that even though many of them knew the risks of uh, especially crossing the Mediterranean, they basically told us they preferred a a quick death in the Mediterranean to a slow death in Darfur. So the popular narrative um, is actually that the conflict is over. And that remaining violence is due to crime and failures of police and justice system. So obviously, our study contradicts these findings. It shows that conflict and violence continues, including attack, harassment, pervasive surveillance. I've, I've mentioned, I've mentioned all of these, um, and that smuggling and trafficking are not the causes of migration; um, they are facilitators. I mean, as as shown in many other studies. And, in fact, it's the closure of borders that has led to a proliferation of smuggling networks and, as Margie will say, increasing risks for, um, uh, for Darfuris migrating. So the implications for the cartoon process. Um, well, basically, the... Sorry, first of all, the cartoon process is the uh, collaboration between the EU and um, countries in the Horn of Africa, particularly in Sudan, to manage migration. So the and uh, yeah, basically collaborating with the Sudan government. The focus of the Khartoum process is very much on border management and smuggling networks for migrants going uh, uh, migrating through Sudan. So obviously this does not address the causes of migration um, from Sudan, in particularly Darfuris. And what our study does is it provides evidence that this must be given greater attention. So Because forced migration from Sudan is clearly a big issue. I mean, there really needs to be engagement on human rights with the government of Sudan. And you know, some kind of uh, any cooperation or collaboration with the Sudan government being conditional on ending this persecution of particular groups. Of course, this is going to take time. So in the meantime, I think maybe the first thing is just to make that problem visible. Um, So which includes protection monitoring of IDPs, of of students, and also kind of, you know, liaising with the relevant authorities. Supporting livelihoods, uh, we can talk about that in in more detail maybe in a discussion. And the other thing is just to ensure that any aid programming is is conflict sensitive. And I'll leave it at, at that.
1: Thanks very much, Suzanne, and, and thank you for painting a picture for us, both you know, countering the narratives that we all hear about, that the crisis is over in Darfur, no longer a need for humanitarian assistance there, but what you've documented is kind of what you call the systematic persecution of people there that's driving them out. Um, and also, you know, this... This picture of despair, and I remember when we were talking about the title of the report yeah. um, and really wanting to emphasize that aspect, that sort of personal yeah. aspect, that yeah. sense of hopelessness that is um, that is uh, making them leave. Mm. Um, but maybe now turning to Margie, could you tell us a little bit about what happens when they do leave, and finally, what um, their experience is like once they arrive in Europe, the dark world.
3: Yes, um, thank you very much. So yes, I'm going to pick up the story about what the experiences of Darfuris once they've left Sudan uh, on their journey to get to Europe and what happens once they reach Europe. So in some ways, their experiences are similar to migrants from other African countries, uh, the slavery and exploitation they may experience in Libya, which has now been quite well documented, uh, the extreme risks of crossing the Mediterranean. But what we think is different for Darfuri migrants is they're amongst some of the poorest of the African migrants coming to Europe, which means that some of those risks are exacerbated. So for example, in coming through Libya, Um, many of them are getting stuck in Libya for a couple of years because they don't have the money to pay their way through Libya. And so they're getting involved in uh, slavery, bonded labor, kidnapping. And we've heard many cases of Darfuris who've been in Libya for two years or more. Um, They also don't have the resources to pay smuggler networks. So their journeys through Europe may be delayed as a result of that. They may be put in the least seaworthy boats crossing the Mediterranean because of of having more limited resources. So that's one of the the things that we would like to kind of highlight about this particular group. Um, We also think that they're amongst some of the most poorly educated uh, migrants coming from Africa to Europe. And that shows up in a number of, of different ways, certainly through language skills. And the evidence, once they reach Europe, is actually they're quite poorly informed. And even though information is being made available to migrants, it doesn't seem to be getting through to this particular group. And instead, they're very much dependent on information that's passing um from one Sudanese migrant to another. So it's quite dependent on hearsay. Everybody's getting the same information. And what they know about, for example, rights and asylum procedures in Europe is actually actually very limited. Um, One of the other things, though, it may be worth pointing out that we've been very struck by in in this research are the very strong support networks within or amongst the Sudanese uh, migrants. So we've seen that on their journeys in the way that they're supporting each other. And then we've also seen that in the UK in terms of some of the community associations that have been set up uh, amongst the newly arrived migrants and how they're supporting each other. And that, that again, seems to be a particular uh, feature of of this group. Um, So... Let me say a little bit more about um, the, the journeys that people have taken. And I'm going to illustrate that with the example of one particular migrant who we interviewed in Belgium. So um, you've got the map on the screen here of the, the, the movements that he took from leaving Sudan, this all happened over a period of a year, from leaving Sudan, having been a student who'd been arrested, detained, imprisoned, and then decided to leave for his own safety. So he came overland through Libya, and as you can see from the arrows on the map, has has moved through Europe, back and forward in many different directions. And I just want to really draw your attention to three particular aspects of this journey. So first of all, like many uh, Sudanese migrants, uh, his aim was to move through Italy fast, and he considered applying for asylum In France but then realized that there were a lot of people living on the streets in France waiting to register their asylum claims so at that point decided to move on um, to try and reach the UK which he did from from Calais uh, traveling illegally on a truck and once he this is the second point that I want I wanted to raise about his particular experience so, once he reached the UK, he was then deported after about 10 months back to Italy as a result of the Dublin 3 regulations, because that's where he'd been registered as having arrived. So, he then carried on to again didn't want to apply for asylum in Italy, moved back to France, and did apply for asylum, was waiting for a number of months, again living on the streets, living rough and so decided to move to to Belgium to try to to get to the UK once again. And uh, this is really an example of these kind of circular movements that many Darfuri migrants are are kind of stuck in, if you like, uh, as they try to reach their uh, their, their final destination. Um, The lack of trust in asylum procedures came through, the lack of assistance whilst awaiting for asylum. And a number of Darfuri migrants have told us about police violence that they've been subjected to um, in Italy, France, and in Belgium. Um, so, let me just say a little bit about European policies. So, what, what's been the impact of European migration policies? on this particular uh, group of migrants, on Darfuri migrants. Um, so what we're seeing is these like mini humanitarian crises across Europe, and particularly around borders, where borders have been closed, and you've got migrants kind of stuck on those borders trying to cross, and often living in very poor conditions with very limited assistance. And our our observation in doing this uh, research is the high proportion of Sudanese who are amongst those migrants stuck on the borders. So we saw this in Ventimiglia on the the French-Italian border. We've seen it in in Brussels and in Calais. Um, Secondly, the impact of the Dublin Three regulations. So uh, as I already mentioned, uh, Darfuris are often trying to reach a country where they think they have the best chance of claiming asylum, and often where they've already got contacts and family members. And they're trying to move under the radar, undetected, to in order to reach those countries. Now that means, of course, they're undocumented, they're unregistered, so they're much more vulnerable to deportation and to being picked up and, and arrested in the process. And, and don't have access to protection, to, to relief assistance. Um, asylum procedures, I've already given examples of how those can be very slow, can be very um, inefficient, sometimes very unpredictable. And as uh, from what Suzanne was saying, is evidence, and I think we, there's a lot of evidence in our report, of actually how a lot of Darfuri migrants have a very strong claim for asylum in Europe because of what they've experienced. And that doesn't always seem to be coming through in terms of how their asylum claims are being treated. Um, deportations is another point I wanted to, to draw attention to. So a number of Um, European countries have either got formal agreements with the government of Sudan, for example, um, Italy, or informal agreements, which seems to have facilitated deportations of uh, sometimes failed asylum claimants. uh, Sometimes it's not even clear whether these are people who have claimed asylum or not. And some of those deportations back, uh, back to Khartoum uh, they're, not, they're not monitored when people are sent back to Khartoum, so we don't know what's happening to them. But again, the concern that we raise in this report is that the persecution is also happening of Darfuris in Khartoum. So claims that it's safe to send people back to Khartoum, um, we, we would challenge. Um, and, but I also just to say that some of the, the, the European governments that do have agreements with the government of Sudan it's those agreements have enabled Sudanese government officials to come to those countries to screen some of the Sudanese who are on the verge of being of being deported, uh, which, yeah, is, is highly questionable when you look at some of the uh, refugee conventions, uh, European Convention on Human Rights, for example, that uh, European governments are signed up to. Uh, trauma, another point that... Uh, we raise uh, in the report that was very evident to us in doing this research are the levels of trauma amongst Darfuri migrants. It's not surprising given the experiences that they've had often in Sudan before they leave coming through Libya and then reaching a continent uh, Europe where they think that their human rights are going to be respected and then some of the experiences that they have uh, in Europe. But our, our concern is that the trauma, which comes through in many different ways, is actually not being addressed. It's not being addressed whilst they're en route in transit, and it's also not being addressed when they reach their final destination, including here in the UK. So um, what does all of this mean? Um, Well, what we draw attention to uh, in in this study is, first of all, uh, what needs to change is we need to be providing adequate shelter food and water for refugees in transit and for those waiting for their asylum claims to be considered in Europe um, it's a lot of voluntary organizations are stepping into the breach but it's really it's really imperative that European governments fulfill their uh, their obligations on this we would also add our voice to the calls to address inconsistencies in asylum regulations uh, between European countries, European governments, and that there's a real need to increase burden sharing rather than expect that the countries of origin, sorry, the countries where migrants first arrive are going to process all the asylum claims. Um, And yeah, the two other points that I've, I've already made, that we do believe many Darfuris have a strong case for asylum because of what they've experienced in Sudan. And we also think there's a real need to provide Uh, a much greater provision of treatment for trauma um, for Darfuris both in transit and when they reach their destination. But above all, I think what our study reveals is this fundamental failure to protect. And that starts in Sudan. It's a fundamental failure to protect people who've been affected by the conflict, uh, people who are living in IDP camps, uh, students in Khartoum. And then it's a fundamental failure to protect as people are fleeing for their own safety along the route. So whether it's in Libya and even when they reach Europe. And that's one of the things that we really are trying to shine a spotlight on in this report. So thanks very much. Thanks very much,
1: Marty. And you know, again, a really vivid picture of what that journey from um, Darfur to various parts in, of Europe look like. And and you know, what you have on your chairs here in London is an executive summary of a, a fairly chunky report that has a lot of that vivid detail and a lot of evidence of all of this inside it. So I encourage you to go online for the full copy, for the full report, um, and really delve into some of that detail because it's a, a really solid evidence base for this journey, this process, um, and this systemic um, persecution which you both alluded to. Maybe just a quick question for you, Margie. I was struck by something you said about these kind of mini-humanitarian crises on the borders um, between the different countries in Europe, um, and the fact that you said that you're, you found a lot of Darfuris there. Mm-hmm. What is it about the Darfur experience in particular that, that puts them on these borders without um, an ability to move beyond them or without assistance?
3: yeah um, I mean lack of resources is a big one because if you've got money then you've got a much better chance of uh, of, of finding a smuggler who'll take you across the border and so that's uh, that was absolutely a kind of fundamental. Um, fundamental issue and the other thing which I didn't mention which is also causing these like mini humanitarian Mm -hmm. crises is a lot of local authorities are making it very difficult for voluntary groups to provide relief assistance and protection Mm -hmm. um, to migrants stuck on in those border areas and as I say that's where we're seeing a high proportion of Sudanese.
1: Thank you. Maybe I'll turn to Zuhair. Um, yeah. You are a Sudanese refugee yourself. You also are a community leader um, in helping others, um, other Sudanese refugees in Brantford, I believe. Um, you know, get beyond their experience of having come here. Does does what you know? You, you've heard from your colleagues this picture of systemic persecution um, of why people left Darfur in the first place. Um, What can you talk about from your own experience or from those of the people that you work with? um, What does that look like to them? Is that something that resonates with you?
4: Thank you very much. Um, First of all, I would like to speak briefly about what underpinned my interest with regard to conflict in Darfur. So I'm originally from Darfur, and uh, I have been studying the conflict in Darfur for a long time. I did my PhD on this issue. And also I have contributed to some studies on Darfur with some organizations like American NGO and also with University of Manchester, with whom I worked for two years. And again, I have contributed to this uh, report as well, as interpreter, as an interviewee, and as well as uh, a, a report reviewer. So all this together, in addition to being a refugee from Darfur, that makes me very much interested on the issue of Darfur and what the Darfurians have experienced here, whether in UK or back home. From my experience as a refugee and from my experience working with Darfurian refugees here in the UK, I can talk about three major pushing factors that made the Darfurians to leave Darfur to come here. The first one is the persecution, and that the Darfurians have been badly treated in their home there. That's one thing. Uh, The other thing is, in uh, coincide with this kind of persecution and abusive and attack and all these things, uh, the Darfurian lack protection, whether from the international community represented by UN mission in Darfur or later on by UNAMID. all these missions were unable to provide the expected protection from the, that the Darfuris, the Darfuris were expecting from the international community, let alone from their own government. So that is another reason. The third reason is the unemployment and the destruction of the livelihood. The livelihood inside Darfur was completely destructed because of this attack, burning villages, attacking fields and crops and everything. And then all people move into urban centers or move into IDP camps. So with this situation, The youngest were trying to find another way to survive. So they moved from the camps inside Darfur to eastern part of Sudan, Khartoum, Durman, or wherever. And more students, according to some studies, uh, the the number of Darfurian students increased between 2003 upwards, because people found themselves sitting, doing nothing. They said it's better to go and join uh, doing studies especially postgraduate studies. But when they go there to the universities in Khartoum and other cities in the east and northern Sudan, they found another kind of discrimination and bad treatment. So now they found themselves blocked. So what what the options left is to leave Sudan. So that is why most of the people who leave Sudan, the Darfuris who leave Sudan, are youngest people, because Everything is blocked in front of them, and they feel that there is no hope. So that is why they just leave Sudan to come here. That is with regard why people were coming here. After they came here, what is the situation? They came here, the first thing they face is a language barrier. Because they have a, a very low education, and their education uh, with regard to the English skills, is very low too. That's because they have very low education, and because in Sudan there was a policy of Arabi- Arabization, whereby the English is no longer being a kind of an interest for the people, and the whole universities were being the, the, instru- the language of instruction. The whole university was turned into Arabic language instead of. English language in some universities. <coughs> so they came here with no uh, language skills, and they faced the situation here, and they found it very difficult to communicate. That's one thing. Another thing, they found the process, the procedures of the asylum process, for them is very dis- difficult and not trusted. I think for, from my own experience and my contact with these people, they came loaded with some pre-ideas that governments do not do much, do much to help people. So they apply what has happened in Sudan to what might be happen here in the UK. So they are not trusting government procedures. Especially here in the UK, when you go, they will tell you, go back home, we'll send you a letter on the post and then your procedures will be followed. So they don't have trust on this at all. Let alone their information about this process and about the situation in, 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 in the UK were very confusing. They have picked up this information through social media from their relatives who were living here, from their friends who were living here, and they don't have a very clear picture about what's going on here. So when they came here, they just found themselves in this kind of trapping, and they can't go further. So that is one thing. That is a problem in itself. But the challenge is how to cope with this situation and to get out of it. So uh, the challenge of coping with the situation coping with the life in the UK, that's another difficulty. Why? Because these people, when they arrive in the UK, they have been given accommodation, and that's a good thing. And by the way, when you ask them about their experience in France or Italy or Belgium compared to UK, they praise the situation in the UK. It's brilliant, the police treated them very well, they have been given uh, accommodation and assistance very quickly yet there are some problems of how to accommodate. There have been located houses in a very poor areas and these poor areas are inhabited by more likely by migrants whether from Africa from some Arab countries or from Asian background people and these people themselves are struggling. They have no room to help others. So they are struggling with the language, they are struggling with the life, they are struggling with everything. And within this situation, the Sudanese seem to make their own pockets within this uh, segregatory residence, residential system. So they have made their own pockets, and this is not going to help because in most times they talk to one another in their Arabic language or the Sudanese language, And they can't learn more about the English language and about the situation here. And they don't have a direct touch with the original people of this country, at least to borrow from them how they can behave, how they can pick up some kind of life here in this country. So that is another problematic issue. How to get out of this? It continues with them up to now. Another issue is, what I would call, and actually it is—it was called by the Theresa May uh, hostile environment for the migrants. I think that hostile environment policy that adopted by the British government in 2012, and it was initiated by Theresa May at that time. She was, uh, I think, the Home Office Secretary. This hostile environment towards the uh, migrants had made the situation more worse meaning that there was a cut in the funds and there was a reduction in the system that pro- provided to the refugees. I will give only one example, there is a center in Bratford called for Refugee Action whereby. People go there, the refugee and asylum seekers go and seek for assistance, whether to apply for benefit or to seek uh, a legal assistant and legal advice and so on and so forth. The center in 2012 up to 2013 was full of advisors, legal advisors, and other advisors who can give advice to the refugees and the migrants. By now, there's only one advisor, and she works only once a week. And four or five years ago, there were five advisors who work five days a week. So look at that. Another uh, another implication of the hostile environment policy was cutting the assistance for the refugees. Refugees used to be paid some money for their livelihood, transport and others that money was cut off by about 50% and now they are living for about 35 pounds a week including living expense transport and everything this made people just confine themselves to home because they don't have money to go outside they don't have money to pay for taxi or bus to go outside they don't have money to go to cinema, to go to theater, to go for entertainment. So they just keep at home. Keeping at home duplicates the depression and the flashback that they their head. And that will lead me to go to the issue of trauma. They have already come to this country loaded with trauma because of the treatment that they have received <coughs> in their own country in addition to what they have undergone through Libya and France, Italy and so on. And when they arrive here, they have that kind of trauma, but they are not aware of it. And now by this policy on confining and separation, isolation and sitting alone, that have been exaggerated and people became more nervous, depressed, and it led to a kind of domestic violence. People, wife and husband, become so angry and arguing, and sometimes it led to clash between them. Uh, Mom and dad sometimes are angry, and they just put that on their kids. Maybe they punish the kids, or they speak abusive language, or loudly, or bullying the kids. And all these problems we have faced on the real well for example when a few years after i just one year after i finished my phd i thought about an idea to help sudanese refugees and with others about a dozen of people men and women we came together to organize something called sudanese community in bradford We only formed that kind of organization to try to help each other to come together to have space where we can sit and then you can talk to one another and if someone needs help, we can intervene and help them. We help them with interpretation, we help them with filling in forms for uh, benefits, we help them to read the letters that they receive from the home office, we help them to direct them to uh, uh, service providers and their locations and this and that. So. With having the Sudanese community in Bradford, people have the confidence to come and talk to me as a chairperson of that organization. And slowly, 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 I build trust with people, men and women, so they come to approach me and to talk about their difficulties and differences at home and how we can mediate that. So I have been involved in mediating a lot of conflicts between husband wives and we are able sometimes we are able to resolve that in most cases we are able to resolve it in some cases we are not able and they refer it to the police and sometimes the police come back to ask us to intervene if the two parties of course agreed to that and with this kind of intervention I get to know a lot about what's going on and what has happened to these people and what kind of trauma they are suffering so uh, I will finish my (coughs) my intervention is one point that is uh, related to the problem of this trauma and how people can deal with it there is no much support from the government mm-hmm. there is no much support from the organization because they say they do lack support they do lack fund especially the clinics and there is no counseling the people are not aware to where they can go and we left as if you have to take this burden as community. And you don't have the experience. We don't have the expertise. we don't have the resources. And we are suffering because we are refugees too, and we have our own problems. So I think that is the point where the government need to revisit their policies, especially the, uh, what's so called the hostile environment policy and look for a genuine support for qualified organizations that can tackle this issue of trauma and help the refugees and asylum seekers, Sudanese and other asylum seekers alike. And this kind of problems are similar within all other communities. I have been dealing with Arabs. I have been dealing with some Asians. I have been dealing with other. Africans and Sudanese. So they all share this kind of problems.
1: Thank you. Thanks to for that. And it was something I really wanted to ask you about was this issue of trauma because Margie, you know, we talked about it and it's talked about in the in the report, and you've raised it as part of the work that you do with your community in Bradford. But as you say, it's not necessarily your responsibility, is it's not the responsibility of the community itself to be to be dealing with such high levels of trauma. And it's fantastic that you've got a community support group but that the UK government, or at least the local council, somebody should be helping to support what you're trying to do. And I wondered if you could just you know, let, let us know what it is, what would be the one thing that the government could do, either through the hostile environment policy or otherwise, to help support what you're trying to do at a community level?
4: I think two steps the government can do. One step is to have a package of induction that should include the issue of trauma called the newcomers, asylum seekers and refugees. Because they came here and they have the trauma, they don't know about it. So if someone has the expertise and come in this package of induction, and this, I, I, I would say this induction should be a compulsory. Because when people came for the first time, they were assigned to support workers or organizations, some organizations to help them. That organization or support worker should include this issue of trauma into their program and give a comprehensive induction about the diagnosis and the kinds of uh, issues that could come up with the trauma, depression, what depression means. And also to tell people that it's not an issue that to behind, because back home in Sudan, when you associate issue of mental health to person, that's the kind of stigma, so that's why people don't Wants to come up and tell about it. So uh, you have to raise their awareness that this is not a stigma, this is a normal thing like a physical, uh, physical illness or anything. That's one point. The other point is to provide genuine counseling side by side at the GPs. At least I, I would not say every GP should have a counseling uh, department, but at least of the GPS should have a counseling department there for the people to access and to have counseling to talk about their concerns in this regard.
1: Thank you very much, Suhair. Dame Marsden, hi. Um, you've heard from all three of our speakers what um, has been termed in the report and certainly has been evidenced, at least in this discussion, as a, uh, a sort of widespread failure to protect Darfuri's both at home and, and once they get here. And here in a country and in Europe, um, the sort of you know the nexus of some of the, the most progressive refugee and human rights conventions that we have in this world. So you know, what do you, from your perspective, how should we in the UK or in Europe um, be dealing with this hypocrisy?
5: Well, thank you. Um, and to start with, um, I wanted to say that I very much agree with the findings and recommendations um, in this report. Uh, which I think is a, an extremely good report. Um, there are one or two other political considerations I would like to add, but perhaps I can come back to that in a moment. Um, on, on the question you, you asked, um, I mean, I think the first point I'd make is that the UK has tre- been traditionally respected by many Sudanese people because of its perceived values of respect for human rights, justice and democracy, and the same goes for the, for the EU as a whole. And while recognising the domestic political pressures on European governments over this migration issue, I think it's really important to find a way of dealing with the issue humanely if Europe is not to be seen as betraying these very values that it stands for. And there is a real risk of this happening if, if migrants become disillusioned by the way they're treated during the asylum process or on the journey or indeed by security forces once they get to Europe. Um, so I think this means doing two things, um, the first of which is to do much more to address the root causes of conflict and the drivers of migration at source, and that, that's partly to do with, with trying to uh, achieve a revitalised peace process. Um, but that, all of that could take some time, and in the meantime, it's, I think it's really important um, to do more to focus on the protection aspects. And um, the issues I would particularly highlight which are brought out in the report, I think first of all um, the lack of legal migration channels which are accessible to Darfuris means they have to depend obviously on smuggler networks which um, and, uh, are exposed to all the risks that that involves. And I think according to IOM, IOM's latest figures which came out in the last few days, over 1,500 migrants are known to have drowned in the Mediterranean this year alone. Um, Secondly, Europe's emphasis on deterrence and border closure um, means compromising the safety of migrants, as as we've seen particularly from a recent CNN documentary, the um, appalling conditions that some Darfuris have had to live in in Libya where they've been detained or enslaved. And thirdly, um, and I think... Malgi referred to this. Um, I'm concerned about um, that failed Dalfuri or unsuccessful Dalfuri asylum seekers have been returned to Sudan by some European governments with little or no follow up. And given Sudan's human rights record and the absence of, a, of a me- any mechanism to monitor what happens to these people post deportation, um, I think that's an issue of real concern and it would be important to encourage European member states um, to take more responsibility to try to find ways of monitoring the welfare of asylum seekers if if they are returned. There's also, as was mentioned, the very worrying trend to allow Sudanese officials access to screening Sudanese refugees on the verge of being deported, which obviously exposes them to to risks on their uh, their return. And then finally, on the protection side, uh, the, the concern about the very slow asylum process in the UK, um, where asylum seekers um, often have to wait years uh, for their claims to be <coughs> processed, can face multiple rejections. And during, the time, during all this time, they're not allowed to work, um, which is a real problem. Um, and they also face the threat, of course, of being kept in detention centres for indefinite periods. So these are some of the issues, I think, I would certainly highlight on the protection side.
1: Thank you. Um, maybe just coming back to your point about um, the mechanism to monitor people post-deportation, mm. what is what do you feel is the responsibility of, of European governments or the UK government in monitoring people post-deportation, and how does this fit into some of the wider global processes that are ongoing?
5: Uh, well, I, as far as I understand it, I don't think governments have any... I don't think they have a legal obligation to mm. do this um, under refugee law. But clearly in a country like Sudan, given what we know um, anecdotally and so forth about the human rights situation, I would have thought it was important to try and make a special effort to devise some sort of network, maybe working with local Sudanese civil society organisations and possibly others to see if some more systematic attempt can be made to find out what happens. Um, because I think that's really important as an input to Home Office policy making.
1: Did you want I heard some murmurings over here. Did you have any thoughts, Suzanne or Margie, on this and what you feel government responsibility is in this regard?
2: I think both government. Well, I mean, it's it's. I mean, like like, Martin says. I mean, there there is no um, there is no mechanism for doing this. I mean, I remember um, talking about it to UNHCR in Khartoum. And they said, we, no one's asked us about to monitor. I mean, basically, nobody knows, not UNHCR, not iom um, Nobody knows what happens to you know, people who return returned to Sudan. So yeah, I fully agree that that's needed.
1: Mm. Um, and then Dame Marsden, you also talked about a revitalized peace process in Sudan. Um, and certainly, a lot of what this study says is that you know w- we really should be looking at tackling the root causes of why people leave in the first place. Um, but given your experience as an EU and a British official in Sudan, what do you feel? What are the terms for some kind of engagement or dialogue with the government of Sudan on this issue at this point?
5: Mm. Um, well, I think I, I think that you know the issue of migration um, can't be addressed through security measures alone. Um, I think that's clear. And the focus at the moment of um, fighting traffic, human trafficking and, and migrant smuggling networks just look like tackling the symptoms rather than the causes of the problem. And I think in the, in the report, um, it was also noted that although support for livelihoods is, is indeed sorely needed, that, uh, as long as migrants are, fe- are fleeing from violence and repression, um, livelihood support alone is not also not going to address the problem. <coughs> so the only effective way of reducing the flow of migrants over time is to do more to end Sudan's internal conflicts um, and to, to try to make progress on peace and democratic transformation so that um, would-be migrants can enjoy safety and freedom and livelihood opportunities in Sudan. Um, and I'm concerned for, that if UNAMIT, for example, were to leave Darfur in 2020, which is the current plan, um, and if the government of Sudan were to pursue plans to close the camps or displaced people in Darfur, then actually the European Union and its member states could face a further wave of migrants coming mm-hmm. towards its borders. So I think all these political issues have to be looked at as a whole. Now, um, on the peace process, I think my recommendation would be that the UK... Um, and the European Union working in coordination with uh, international partners, should make a real effort to redouble diplomatic efforts. Um, to I hate to use the word revitalise because that's been used with South Sudan, but to, for the lack of a better word, to, to sort of re-energise the AU-led uh, Sudan peace process, which is being chaired by President Mbeki, um, which has been relatively dormant or stalled for quite some time, and to apply more pressure... On the government of Sudan, I mean, of course, on all the parties to the conflict, but especially the government. Um, so I think more, more um, political engagement by the UK and the EU is needed. The EU is providing funding for the pa- for the African Union mediation panel, but funding isn't enough. So um, the, the next po- sort of following on from that, I think, therefore, any move by the UK or other member states to cooperate more closely with the government of Sudan, or to, or by the United States to remove Sudan from its list of state sponsors of terrorism, or eventually to grant debt relief by the Paris Club. I think all that should be conditional on substantial uh, fundamental progress on peace, dem- democratization, and respect for human rights. And a transparent conditions-based approach should also be the basis of the UK-Sudan strategic dialogue. Mm-hmm. So um, essentially as the report rightly says, uh, human rights should be at the heart of the EU's engagement with the Sudanese government.:
1: And do you think that concessions like removing the Sudanese government from the list of you know, from the, the list in the United States or the list of sanctions in the United States or else um, you know favorable trade terms or favorable lending terms is that enough to get the government of Sudan to the table? Well, pieces.
5: the government of Sudan is very keen to get to re- see itself removed from the U.S. list of state sponsors of terrorism. What we know is, I think, <clears throat> the U.S. government is is hoping to in, to embark on a second phase of engagement with the government of Sudan over this issue. The first phase resulted in uh, in Sudan's removal from, well, the lifting of U.S. economic sanctions on Sudan last year. So this would be the second phase, um, and what that means is I think that at the moment, the US government has probably got more leverage on Sudan as a result of that than perhaps the European governments have. So I think that's, um, that, that gives them the ability to set some, some fairly far-reaching conditions. Um, and I think if, if steps were taken to try and end the conflicts and to put pressure on, on the government to improve spa- space for political space... Um, then that would contribute to an environment in which would also ad- help to address the migration issue.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, and thanks to our panel. I think um, we've had a fantastic discussion up here. I want to then turn it over to all of you and, and those of you who are listening um, on watching online. Um, but before I get open it up to questions, I wanted to give the floor to Oliver Bakewell, who's a colleague sitting here in the corner, um, who is the research coordinator on migration and development for the um, research and um, evidence facility of, um, that, that has sponsored this this report. And you, you know, we've been talking very specifically about Darfur up here, but you have commissioned a number of different pieces of research dealing with other populations in similar circumstances. Does this discussion resonate with you and the other research that the REF has commissioned?
6: Thanks very much. Thank you for this study and thanks for the the presentations. Um, Just to explain, the Research and Evidence Facility is a slightly unusual group. It's a consortium um, led by SOAS um, with the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester and Sahan Research in Nairobi. And we've got funding from the EU Trust Fund to commission research relating to their activities. So we're funded by the commission, by the trust fund, but we're able to do independent research, which means we're able to put out some quite critical pieces, um, looking at different aspects of um, the work of the EU within, within the Horn of Africa, so it's particularly on the Horn of Africa. So this report um, is the first one which we've been involved in, which has actually taken us outside of the Horn and actually looked at the whole process of movement to Europe. So, in terms of the comparison or the points of resonance, it's more about the issues within of movement w- within the horn, and a few things come out. Firstly, um, it's very striking that here we see Sudan is presented as a country, as a sending country, and I think that point hasn't really been come across so far in the discussion. Where so often in the discussion, Sudan, I think positions itself and is often seen and presented as as if it's all about transit. Mm. And it reminds us that there is so much mobility across the horn and it is... um, Yeah, every country is receiving, sending, people are moving through. And uh, so it starts to break down some of those those categories. Um, The... uh, The other thing is the relationship between mobility and um, livelihoods is so fundamental. We've been doing research on cross-border mobility and and livelihoods and seeing how much movement across the region, it's irregular, it may be sometimes facilitated by smugglers, but it's fundamental to the way people people live. So particularly thinking of movements between um, Ethiopia and Sudan, where hundreds of thousands are going to work in the... um, in, on, on, in the labour market in Sudan. And those moves, t- it, there's questions arise about how far um, these things, you know, what migration management means in those sorts of contexts, and how far the categories of irregular, regular migration necessarily make sense. Um, it's also, as we've seen, the, very, the historical um, perspective from Darfur. is it's, Livelihoods in the area have been based on mobility. And there is a caution there, which comes across in, in a lot of our research, about thinking that um, you solve the conflict in Sudan, you know, improve the quality of people people's access to rights, you will still have large volumes of movement, and pot- potentially increased volumes of movement, but it's going to be a different quality of movement. And I think that's really important. Very often, there's concern about um, migration management, and about tackling the root causes of irregular <laughs> migration, and that's often problematic, and forced migration. And it's often elided into this expectation that's tackling the root cause of migration. And migration is essential to the way people live, the way all of us live. So we, you know, we've got that sort of caution coming across in a lot of our work. Um, just one other point which I found really interesting in the report, it, ha- it hasn't been mentioned yet, is this... The, um, the way that the young Darfuris are dealing with risk and making their decisions about moving, and it's the, you know the report mentions that uh, people have, uh, young people are making you know they they're not moving with the blessing of their family, they're making their, they're making their own way without telling their families. That echoes findings we had from a study um, of movement between the Horn of Africa and Yemen. And uh, what I've Wondered, and it's, it may be a question, but it's also an uh, important point when it comes to the policies that are adopted, uh, about how people look at risk. Because young people we were talking, hearing from there, the young Somalis on a very convoluted um, trip to Europe knew about the dangers they faced. They deliberately left without telling their families with the expectation their families might then, would then pay a ransom when they're in trouble. So, to something, then the risk was embedded in their decision making. I'm curious to know if that was happening. Um, I think the Somalis we were talking to um, maybe had more resources, but whether they see any of that sort of the way that risk is incorporated within the um, the movement, which challenge maybe some of the ways we think we think about um, yeah, tackling with information campaigns or telling people about risk. The fact there's risk actually makes it possible for people to go against their parents' wishes. I'll stop there, so the floor can go.
1: Thank you for those insights and for those questions. Let me just take a couple of more questions in the room and then maybe I'll ask you to reflect on what Oliver has said and some others. Please, yes, go ahead in the front row.
0: Hi, my name is uh, Maddie from Waging Peace. We're um, a charity, uh, our charity name is Article One, I should say, that actually supports Sudanese refugees exclusively. Um, so very <coughs> much interested to hear uh, Zahair's thoughts on on some of the challenges he's faced. Certainly everything that's been said today echoes what we've discovered over 14 years of working with this community. Um, I just wondered if you could comment a bit <coughs> more on some of the issues of systematic discrimination that people, Dalfouris face in Khartoum, um, because as you rightly pointed out, and it's an issue um, that's very topical at the moment um, in the UK, at least, that they are looking at revising the country guidance case that has protected, um, you know, thousands of non-Arab Darfuris in Britain for years and years. They're now looking at revising that um, to suggest that Khartoum is safe. Um, obviously, the kind of threshold for what systematic. Uh, discrimination is and persecu- what then would have to be persecution is very high. I'm wondering if you felt it did reach that threshold or if you had examples that were given to you during the, during the course of your research.
1: Thank you. And maybe one more question here. Yes, the woman in the back.
7: Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, just allow me to say that I'm really glad that this report has now been, is going to be published and uh, did I say my name? Suat Musa. <laughs> and I am from Al-Fashir, from Darfur. I uh, have been here since 2002 in Britain, and I live in Manchester. I've come just purposely to attend this workshop, thanks to my colleague, Dr. Zuhair, invited me. Um, for, uh, uh, I'm happy that uh, at this time, at this juncture of history, that this report has been, or is going to be published, because it's really, uh, uh, I can see that is going to be very beneficial for the Darfur people, not for Darfur only, but all the refugees or asylum seekers or migration. And uh, but my main concern first is about the Brexit, and how this uh, um, report is going to be operationalized within this context of this very complicated. Uh, process of uh, of Brexit, especially we know that those Darfur, they come through Libya, they go into the sea, some of them arrive and the majority die, and then they come through Europe and they go through this, um, you know, that uh, map that we, we, we have seen until uh, they come here. But many of them, they are really, uh, they are still stuck in Europe. So that is uh, uh, how Uh, or I hope really that point has been addressed in the report. Um, Going back to the history of immigration in Darfur, um, when I came here in 2002, we were like 20 families in Manchester, not more than 20 families. And all those families, um, uh, the majority of them, they came as students, postgraduate students in the late 1980s and early 1920s, and then they just found themselves to stay here. No no other option, but but to continue. And at that time, even to seek asylum or apply for asylum, like something uh, disgraceful, is so people don't say that I apply for asylum. Now, uh, seeking asylum has become a tradition or has become cultural and has become no problem that come and apply for asylum. Uh, So that is now, In Manchester, we have more than 3,000 or 4,000 refugees or asylum seekers. Um, More than 50% of them, they are still waiting for their cases to be uh, addressed by the Home Office. Uh, Therefore, people, for years, even before the colonialism, or uh, the British Colonials, they used to go and to migrate to other parts of Sudan, you know, seeking better opportunities of uh, working in the agricultural lands or whatever, just to get money and come back. And then after a while, they just go to Libya when they learned about, you know, better opportunities in Libya, but they never stayed there, they come back. And they have contributed a lot to the development of the economy in Darfur. Those people, especially from those ethnic groups, and especially from Zakawa, and from the four people. These are the ethnic groups that, at the moment, they are the most targeted by, uh, you know, all the problems and atrocities in Sudan. Now, I just leave that at this, uh, at this point, and because since this 2002, now the coming to Europe has not be, become just a need, but it's become as ambitious. It is an ambition for people now to come here. And that's why they stake their lives to come here. And they, you know, they keep you know, moving within Europe because they want to come here. Because they feel more safe to come to UK. Or to, uh, uh, you know, because of their families, because they have social safety nets here that they want. So the root cause, when I see this report is about causes and consequences, that means that This report is going to address the causes of the conflict and these causes of the conflict is there in the country and the consequences is here. So it is easier to address the consequences than to address the causes. So this report is also funded by the European uh, uh, Union and here we know that the European Union have been in a, a different kind of relationship cooperation relationship with Sudan and with uh, African countries in the eastern part, the Horn of Africa and North Africa. And recently, the main, uh, 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 because in the past it was about the good governance, that the European Union was, and the members uh, of the the European Union, they were interested in having this, you know, good governance in place, so that there is a kind of stability, there is kind of human rights, you know, all these, you know, uh, uh, ethical uh, uh, things. But since 2014, and, you know, because of these political problems that, you know, swiped uh, uh, Europe, 2014, it came this Khartoum, um, uh, uh, what is it, process. And that Khartoum process, a large part of that it, is, it was meant to consolidate this cooperation with Europe, and especially with regard to migration, and, it was re- and with regard to instability in these African countries. Okay. But in 2016, this process, the Khartoum process, was consolidated by giving the Khartoum government about 100 million, Euro, million of euros, and that government has been one of the root causes of this migration. So the controversy here, how? Uh, uh, because I, ha- I, I, I have no idea about what is really in this report, but I, I, I am sure that there is something you know to address this point in this report uh, uh, about this issue. So, how can the European Union want to address the root causes of conflict there and to stop migration and at the same time consolidate? Uh, by training and by, uh, uh, you know, logistic uh, and by uh, uh, whatever uh, means of uh, capacity building, the government that is really behind all the atrocities, the government whose president is, you know, indicted by the International kil- uh, k- Criminal Court. I, I, uh, 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 and that is really for me what's really uh, concern me is that is there really any uh, uh, opportunity? that this report can help um, or has really uh, showed or addressed that the contribution of the European Union with, uh, to the state uh, in Sudan is really contributing to more immigration, more instability, and more uh, human rights violation. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much for that. So we've got. Let's actually start with this question of of the cartoon process because all of you have touched on it in one way or another, Um, and in particular the focus on. Darfur, Sudan as a as a transit country versus a country of origin, um, and the implications of that in terms of the policies um, between European governments and the Sudanese government, and you pointing out the the failure of that process to really get to the heart of what's you know what's driving people out of out of Sudan. I don't know if um, Dame Marsden or any of the researchers, maybe um, Margie or Suzanne, would like mm-hmm. to address that specific question that came both from Oliver and also from Sohair. Was that so- you? Soad, Soad, um, Dave Marston, why don't you go start? Okay,
5: well, I'm glad you raised the cartoon process. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the two problems are, one, that it's very much focused, as you said, on Sudan as a transit country. Sudan is also, as, as the report says, a very important uh, producing country of refugees. Of course, it also, like other countries in the Horn of Africa, also receives refugees, from, particularly from South Sudan, fleeing their crisis. So it's a complex picture, but I think... The Khartoum process focuses only on, the trans- uh, on Sudan as a transit route, which um, has implications then for the way the whole the whole sort of uh, policy has been framed, which is based on the premise that it's possible to address the migration issue by working in partnership with the government of Sudan to fight smuggling and trafficking networks. So the assumption is that the problem is the trafficking and smuggling networks, not the policies of the government itself. So much of the focus um, for the European Union has been on supporting stronger border controls, um, doing some police training, um, I think under some quite tight conditions, but nevertheless training police. This is through the regional um, Better Border Management programme, um, which I think is funded to about the tune of €40 million. Euros, but that's for the whole whole of Africa region. And also, there's also a plan, apparently, to set up uh, a regional operations centre in Khartoum um, for sharing uh, police intelligence. So there are a lot of issues that arise out of all this, particularly an increasing number of reports showing that government of Sudan officials are themselves complicit in trafficking and smuggling, Um, and, of course, the policies of the government more broadly in relation to counterinsurgency operations targeting civilian populations in some cases in the conflict zones. So um, the other issue that has been very controversial is the fact that since the European Union um, entered into this Khartoum process, the government of Sudan decided to assign the main responsibility for combating um, irregular migration and border control to the Rapid Support Forces, which um, is a government para- paramilitary force initially mainly composed of the gingerweed, although now they've brought in a number of other tribes. Um, But this force itself um, has been uh, allegedly linked to large-scale human rights abuses. And uh, indeed, a report that's just been published by the Klingendal Institute shows um, that um, the rapid support force is itself actually involved in smuggling and trafficking. Um, Now, the European Union has strenuously and repeatedly denied giving any financial support to the rapid support force. But... um, An an indirect consequence, in a way, of the European approach has been to empower the Rapid Support Force in playing this border management role. And it's been, I think, rather embarrassing for the European Union that the the leader of the Rapid Support Force, whose name is Himiti, has frequently um, threatened to to stop arresting migrants en route to Europe and and to to turn on the tap as he puts it, of migration if the rapid support force doesn't get rewarded by the European Union. Um, so um, that, is, that is obviously a very problematic aspect of all this. There's also um, concern as to whether any of the information or equipment that might be provided to the Sudanese police um, could be diverted to other security agencies within the government. And I think particularly amongst NGOs, um, there's a widespread feeling that the European Union and its member states need to be more transparent and accountable in terms of what exactly they're funding by way of programs um, uh, under the cartoon process and and through which channels.
1: Thank you for that. Um, Maybe then to get to this question of um, risk and risk calculation. Um, something that you posed, Oliver, and maybe turning first to Zuhair on this. Um, you, our, our colleague here, Suhad described a situation that, uh, that migration for many people, in particular young people, is not only a need, it's an ambition, and that's something I think that resonates with your research, and in, in particular in Somalia. Um, so maybe if you could just, you know, knowing what you know in the communities that you work with here, um, what is that risk calculation? What makes people leave a life that they know um, and risk everything? to come to a life that doesn't sound all that great where they end up.
4: Thank you. Actually, most of the people who came here, they know exactly the risk, and they are quite aware about it. And when you ask them, as I've been quoted in this report, they would say if they stay in Sudan, they are going to die slowly. But if they make it through the Mediterranean, there's two options, either to die or to get across the Mediterranean. So it's better to take the two options than to stay for one option that for them is given. And there is no hope in any kind of that the situation is getting better soon, as long as Al-Bashir and his group is there. So that's one thing. Uh, The other thing is, as Saad has mentioned, it has become a kind of ambition to come here, because the youngest who came here, they just send their pictures and some photos to the, their friends over there or their mates at the village to tell them that their life here is very nice. Although sometimes they have faced a lot of difficulties, but they don't talk about that. They only talk about the rose face of <laughs> this life. So they send pictures and photos telling people life here is very nice, clean. We, receive, uh, we have this accommodation, and they give the kind of accommodation they are in. We receive some uh, assistance. and uh, what makes them to be trusted is uh, a part of this uh, small part of this kind of assistance that they receive, they, take, they send it back to family. So the people there can see their families is getting better off after they came here especially the people who have arrived here and have got the refugee status. And then they were able to go to work. So if you are not working, still you can send some of this assistance to your family. If you get a job and work, although it is a very marginal job and with low income, but still to to transfer 50 pounds or 100 pounds to Sudan, it makes a big difference. So people will see that the families of the people who are already here is getting better off and their life is changing. So why not they come and change the life of themselves and the life of their families? So that's why it has become a kind of ambitious and it has become, a, uh, the immigration itself has become a means of livelihood. So people can very reluctantly put this aside unless they have something that tangible and realistic can replace this. Otherwise, they will continue to come.
3: Yeah.
1: Margie, did you have anything? What does that, um, that risk calculation look like to you? Yeah.
3: Um, yes, I wanted to um, respond to, I think, mm-hmm. Oliver's question about uh, is, are there any similarities here to I think it was the Somali um, population that you'd mentioned, um, where maybe one of the reasons they weren't telling their families they were leaving was all tied up with the whole ransom issue. And we didn't find evidence of that in Sudan. So, um, so and, and with, there was two cases, really. There was definitely many examples of people leaving without telling their families. And it was because they felt their families might discourage them from leaving. But that was principally because of the, of the very high risks of, of travelling to Europe and everybody almost everybody that we met knows somebody or knows a family that's lost a family member on the journey so they were that was usually the reason for not mentioning to families why they were going to leave because they thought they would be discouraged or stopped because of the of, of the risk of dying but it was that rather than than ransom issues but then there was also another group where um, The families were actually encouraging their, uh, usually the young men, sons, and uh, as Suzanne mentioned, sometimes these are minors, uh, to leave because of what had happened to them in Sudan, and because they really genuinely feared for their safety. And so you also had examples where families were, uh, family members were clubbing together to raise at least initial sums of money so that the, the... their family, their relative, could leave. And that was because that person faced huge threats. And, and sometimes then that was a threat to the, the entire family. So they were actually encouraging their, um, their family member to go. And just very quickly, I wanted to add one other thing, which is um, I think one of the things we try and highlight in this research that came through is how this migration to Europe is evidence of changing Sudanese society. And so the very fact that young men are leaving Sudan without their family's blessings is unthinkable a generation ago. And it's evidence of a lot of different changes. One of the other changes, I think, um, to highlight is that young people, uh, we've heard this a number of times, they're much less tolerant of some of the examples of discrimination that their parents might have experienced. these are young people who are able to access information about life in the rest of the world who now um, the, the language, the lexicon of rights if you like, is part of their daily language and so they're not prepared to put up with some of the, uh, the hardships and the discrimination that their parents might have faced.
1: Thank you, Margie. Um, Suzanne, maybe to ask you about the waging peace question on systematic um, discrimination and the thresholds um, for that discrimination. Did you find that that discrimination had reached those thresholds?
2: Um, well, certainly we found um, evidence of, well, not only discrimination, but m- more, more than that, persecution, I think, in Khartoum. In um, certainly students um, would talk of kind of repeated uh, arrests, beatings, um, torture sometimes, um, and of course o- on top of that um, faced kind of uh, persistent discrimination in finding empl- employment. Um, we spoke to many uh, students, and this was both in Darfur and in Khartoum, who had tried for years and years and years to get to get a job and in India, and just you know, on top of everything else, you know, that was a a, a big contributing factor. But it wasn't only um, students. I mean, we also talked to people. I mean, quite quite often, um, you know, Darfuris would travel to Khartoum before even going to Libya or or or, or Europe, and then found that they faced the same amount of kind of harassment uh, that that they faced well maybe not exactly the same but they faced you know s- similar kind of harassment arrests um, that they would have faced in 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 Darfur so i mean certainly you have that element also in in Khartoum um, also businessmen who find it difficult you know to have their shops attacked and to have you know difficulties in in operating basically um, so definitely there's plenty of evidence of that, of that happening in Khartoum.
1: Great, thank you. We have one question I over. I
2: just wanted to say in South Sudan, as you know, there's an enormous, the great network of dark of businessmen or sorry, throughout South Sudan. I mean, what about the, the commercial community uh, throughout? I mean, and I think another thing is people go where there are possibilities I mean, your, our generation in in Sudan all went to Saudi Arabia, to the Gulf, to mm. everywhere to get jobs anywhere that they could because there were the economic possibilities.
1: Do you want to comment on the economic possibilities as the driver of current migration even to South Sudan? Was it?
2: Um. Definitely. I mean, that, that several people that we spoke to said, you know, I, I, uh, I, again, I mean, this would maybe an initial thing that would people would try, you know, go to South Sudan, find some work, trade, whatever. And, you know, in some cases, that, that actually uh, um, gave them the money to then move on to, to Europe. But also, but, but more importantly, I mean, when the conflict <coughs> broke out in South Sudan, that became much, much more difficult, um, to, you know, use trade in South Sudan as a, you know, basis for, you know, livelihood. Um, the Gulf also, I mean, maybe Zuhair can talk about this more, it also has become more difficult in, for Darfuris to find work. I mean, first of all, because you need an exit visa. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's and you need a job. And, you know, for many Darfuris, this isn't, this isn't, um, this is very difficult. Zuhair,
1: anything to comment on that?
4: Yeah, I just comment on the, yeah, the, of migration to Gulf has become to an end because uh, situation in, in Gulf and in Saudi Arabia in particular, because most of the Sudanese go to Saudi Arabia, and that is the big market for the Sudanese. Now the Saudi Arabia have this new policy of Sudanization. <laughs> that means to give the top jobs and the mid-career jobs to Saudis themselves, so they want to encourage the Saudi work instead of the Sudanese <coughs> and not only that also the government somehow has kind of relationship with the Gulf government and that discourage uh, employment of the Darfurians at top level of advisory jobs and management jobs as well so that's why the Darfurians themselves blocked there and they have to find another way to go somewhere else
1: Okay, thank you. Um, We're coming to the end of the discussion, but I just wanted to put to the panel one last question. And this gets to Suhad's point, the last point I think you were making. And I'm just going to repeat what I thought was your question. How can the EU address its own causes and consequences of its own migration policies. And in particular, when it's dealing with a government that's behind a lot of the push factors, behind a lot of the atrocities that we're talking about here, behind a lot of that trauma. I don't know if we want to do sort of one last pass through the panel to see uh, what you thought of that comment from Suhad. Please, Margie.
3: Yeah, um, thank you. I think that um, what is clearly driving a lot of the policies uh, with the EU at the moment is this um, overriding desire to curb migration. And I think that means that a lot of decisions are being, make, are being made that are not evidence-based. Um, the fact that this report is the first time that we've really looked at Sudan as a, as a country of origin and have really documented in great detail who's leaving, why they're leaving. This is an opportunity to actually try and switch that policy dialogue to, to make it evidence-based and to actually address what is happening rather than being being driven by this overriding kind of political desire to, to curb migra- migration, which is affecting everything. It's affecting whether uh, migrants are being given assistance in Calais, whether they're being allowed to cross into, um, into France, how European governments are engaging with the Sudanese government. And that's why I would just come back to, this is one final last point I would like to make, is to really, really encourage the um, rights to be at the centre of the dialogue, To human rights to be absolutely at the centre of the dialogue between European governments and, and the government of Sudan. And that would be a massive turnaround in how things are being done at the moment. Thank
1: you, Suzanne.
2: Um, yes, I mean, similar comments, really. I mean, just c- clear that, you know, the cartoon process is not addressing the causes of forced migration from Sudan. Um, strategies of kind of deterrence in, in Europe. Um, I mean, I just want to come back to the kind of humanitarian crisis in, in places like um, Calais and, and Brussels. I mean, this is just really, really shocking to see this in Europe. I mean, you, it's even worse than, you know, what you know, we've, we've seen in Sudan. Um, but, you know, and it's, it's clear that, um, you know, the restriction of assistance is being used as a form of deterrence. Now, what's even worse is that for Darfuris, that's not even a deterrent. Because even living on the street in, in Calais is, 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 is better than being in Darfur. Or, so, I mean, this is how they explained it to us. So, it's just, yeah, I mean, continue to gather evidence of what these policies are actually doing um, and what they're not doing.
4: Yeah. I think with regard to the European policy, it was encouraged by two elements. One element is an internal, whereby the European governments prepare to follow the policy of border control. And that is an easy and for the short run. And they have been pressed by the anti migration parties, the internal pol- politics here in Europe. That's why they haven't took the option of the long uh, term solution, so instead they take the short the short uh, term solution and they go for the controlling at the same time for the government of the Sudan, they find it easier to take this uh, this example of the European Union brings them money it doesn't uh, make them to do anything other than moving some uh, forces to the borders and do this. Because the other option to address the root causes is going to criminalize the government, the government itself. And the government is not in a position to criminalize itself or to address the root causes. So they just pick up this easy option provided to them by the European Union. That's it.
1: Um, right yes.
5: word. Well, thank you. Well, I think well, one of the most I think striking conclusions of the report for me is the fact that um, it emphasises that the continuing flow of Darfuris Darfuri trying to migrate to Europe is an indicator of the ongoing humanitarian crisis, mm-hmm. and that this this is contrary to the narrative that the Darfur conflict is over and that stability is being restored. So I think it's important because this statement doesn't come from members of the Sudanese opposition or from human rights activists. It comes from an academic study commissioned by the European Commission. So, I mean, I think this does underline the fact that it is premature to be trying to move ahead so rapidly with removing UNAMID uh, and sort of talking of normalising relations that until um, there is much more progress on achieving a comprehensive political solution. Um, And that this is, in my view, where the the focus um, of the EU's efforts ought to be to a much greater extent than it currently is.
1: Okay. A firm uh, set of recommendations for the EU from Mm -hmm. the panel. Thanks, um, panel, for all of your insights. um, And thank you for the report, which, as I said, is chock full of very interesting and good detail, so please pick it up um, outside. We have a limited number of copies or online where you can download it. Thanks to all of you here in the audience and those who have joined us online for your good, for your, for your attention, for your good questions. Um, and the panelists will be here afterwards to have a bit of a chat if you'd like to stay. Thanks very much for joining. The video of this will be online in two or three days. I'm looking at, yes, okay, great. So if you want to access it then to remind yourself of the discussion, you can.